Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We will continue on a remorseless mission to squeeze Russia from the global economy piece by piece, day by day, and week by week. One thing, of course, we could also do is to make an open and unconditional offer to Ukrainian refugees to house in the United Kingdom. We haven't seen all of what Putin's going to do at the moment. We do not know what his end goal is. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Stephen Carroll. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up on today's programme, we'll be talking about Brexit and Northern Ireland with Claire Hanna, SDLP MP for Belfast South. And later on, it's London's Tech Week. But can this growing sector make up for the slowdown nationally? We talk to one of Tech Week's founders, Russ Shaw. In Westminster, the Prime Minister's fight back has begun. Yesterday, the government laid out its plans to tear up parts of the Brexit deal. And today, the government's plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda begins with the first deportation flight. Brexit and immigration, core policy offerings of Boris Johnson's government, issues that swept him to power in 2019. But also today, we learned that wages in the UK posted their biggest yearly drop in more than two decades. Some of the worst hit are public sector to workers with real pay falling by nearly 6% year on year. Number 10 is reaching for its comfort food. But will the same tactics that worked for the election still appeal to voters when Britain faces economic hardship? Well, let's turn back to that news of the British government announcing its plans to override parts of the Brexit deal with the European Union, in particular reference to the customs rules that apply to Northern Ireland uh, and how it keeps it in the single market and in the UK internal market. Unionist parties in Northern Ireland have welcomed the proposals, uh, but more than half of the MLAs in the Northern Assembly wrote a letter criticising this move beforehand. That includes uh, members from the SDLP party and we're joined now by Claire Hanna who is the MP for Belfast South for the Social Democratic and Labour Party. Thank you very much for being with us on Bloomberg Westminster. Claire, your party has been very critical of this plan announced by Boris Johnson's government. Now that we have the detail of the proposals, what do you make of them? Uh, unfortunately, I think they're at the um, upper end of, of uh, disruptive and, and we are frustrated and we're worried because it means more instability and more political toxicity um, for Northern Ireland and more uncertainty. And people know that it isn't even really about us. This is um, very largely about uh, Tory party internals um, uh, their comfort food, as you put it um, yourself, and I suppose placating a, a hard Brexit ideology uh, and it's not about um, our will and our welfare. You are right to say that it's been um, rejected by a clear majority of MLAs and indeed uh, by all of the business organisations who say that, yes, I mean, we all um, would like to see the protocol evolve and allowed uh, to, to evolve, to, to make trade uh, run more smoothly, but unilateral action um, won't achieve that. And as has been quite clear for months, it won't even achieve its stated aim of coaxing the DUP back into government because um, their bottom line 
um, is not clear and it hasn't really been clear for the last five or six years what the DUP uh, particularly want and what they'll accept. So making all of these moves, which are so uncomfortable for the majority of people and for businesses, um, just to bring them to the right place um, seems um, doomed to fail. But how serious are the issues then with the protocol in terms of disruption? Do do these proposals resolve them in your view? Um, No. I mean, it's worth saying that the societal disruption in the picture that's been painted by the UK government and the DUP is dramatically far from the truth. And and I've just tabled a question to the uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs about uh, the security assessment on which she is basing her claim that there's a risk to peace and stability. No doubt Nobody particularly loves the protocol because um, it is, uh, like all good compromises, slightly annoying to everybody. Business, though, have been clear they are getting on with things to the best of their abilities. Obviously, yes, we are um, in the middle of some grace periods. And I think it is fair to say that um, if they were lifted, we would be in in a more difficult place. But business have identified uh, workable solutions, which will require movement um, by both Uh, the EU and the UK. But, uh, you know, the likes of disorder in the street that you saw last year, that was quite manufactured. It involved at most a few thousand people in a population of just shy um, of two million. This isn't the type of opposition, you know, hundreds of thousands on the street that you saw to, for example, the Anglo-Irish Agreement or even to the Good Friday Agreement. It's the same uh, part of unionism. There is no doubt that um, there is a hurt in unionism. And, and in many cases, that's, that's understandable. They were directly and explicitly lied to by Boris Johnson, who said there would be no border in the sea and that paperwork could be torn up. And they have been catastrophically uh, poorly represented by the DUP who, who held a lot of power in their hands and who squandered it. Um, but most people are getting on with their lives. Even even the 30% of people who, who have voted for, for parties who are very, very opposed to the protocol and, and bear in mind that doesn't constitute a majority mm-hmm. um, anywhere. Even, even uh, those people repeated polls indicate that it is relatively down um, their list of priorities. People are worried about the health service, people are worried about education, people are worried uh, about the cost of living uh, and, and, and moves like this, disruptive moves like this, do nothing to improve any of those things. Claire Liz Truss was in Northern Ireland re- recently speaking to politicians and also businesses about you know th- these issues around the protocol. You know, did, you, did your party raise these concerns with her and, and how did she react to them? We have repeatedly raised concerns with the UK government on a number of levels. One, about the campaign of distortion um, that is is underway to, um, I, I suppose, try and drown out the very, very strong and clear voice from businesses across a range of sectors who, who say that um, <clears throat> a unilateral move would be highly disruptive and who say that, in fact, Um, The protocol is working for many businesses. There are, of course, those for whom um, it is particularly disruptive who are focused on on east-west trade. But, um, for example, in in manufacturing, where a lot of the jobs are created and a lot of the value is added, it is working well. And um, various um, sets of data have emerged over the last uh, 18 months to show that relatively Northern Ireland is faring well. And there are many people who, who, who worry that 
these moves are part of undermining that. If the part of the UK that remains in the single market um, is, is, is doing quite nicely, that does uh, undermine the case for taking uh, England, mm. Scotland and Wales out of, out of the single market. But it is also important to say, and the SPLP have been um, trying to shout this from the rooftop, and we've been uh, petitioning various ministers for support on this, Northern Ireland has had a sluggish, uh, low-performance economy for decades. W- with this dual market access that we should have, um, you know, under the protocol, access to both the EU and the UK single markets, we have a unique uh, selling point economically that we have not had that could be absolutely transformative and could uh, create prosperity and jobs that would really cement the peace and, and, and would reduce the burden on, on British taxpayers. But that needs uh, clarity and certainty. We know that investments have been deterred by the fact that the rules are kind of tossed up in the air uh, every few months and, and, and a shadow was put on them by unilateral uh, UK action. Businesses um, see Claire, that opportunity and they want the chance to take it. Claire, the issue though is that the bill, I mean, it, it's only at the very initial stages. I mean, we've only just had um, the contents of it. It needs to go through Parliament. Um, that it, it faces opposition from within Boris Johnson's own uh, party. It also faces opposition potentially in the Lords, uh, let alone the kind of EU response mm-hmm. to it. So, look, it's still quite a long way from being reality. So, actually, uncertainty for Northern Ireland could remain in place for quite some months, if not years to come. So, how do we get around that situation? Well, we get around. You're 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 100% right about that, and I think that's what is uh, depressing people in Northern Ireland deeply. But um, we have solved bigger problems than this before. But we know one thing that the way um, you solve them, and, and in the run up to the Good Friday Agreement and since, isn't by unilateral action that is opposed by most people. It is by um, the boring work of getting around the table um, and and exercising partnership uh, and, and compromise. And unfortunately, I mean there are there's definitely um, uh, merit and, and possibility and concepts around, I know the UK are calling it green lane, but something around uh, trusted trader and systems that allow goods that are clearly destined to remain in Northern Ireland. I mean, that is a very uh, appealing uh, uh, goal, but it requires meaningful data sharing and it repa- requires, you know, talking turkey and, and getting in and doing um, the detailed work, which hasn't happened yet between the UK um, and the EU. And it doesn't work to just say, we're not playing by the rules, but you'll just have to trust us um, on this one. And, and, would, and the government well know that. Would a different government in London, do you think, change the position and, and facilitate that? Well, look, uh, you know, you don't need me to tell you that Anglo-Irish relations are at the lowest ebb that they have been, certainly in my uh, political uh, lifetime. And um, nothing works unless Dublin and London are operating as as, as colleagues and, and equals and, and, and friends. Um, and, and I think the this government's approach um, both to relationships with their near neighbours and truth and accountability definitely uh, hamper addressing these issues. And the, the fact is the Prime Minister himself has repeatedly changed his own position um, on, uh, on on Brexit. He has repeatedly broken uh, his own uh, his own red lines and created new ones that that uh, that create even further challenges for Northern Ireland. Uh, and for example, a site the sudden uh, insertion of, of ECJ jurisdiction, which mm. let me tell you, was not something that was on any of the placards that were being waived uh, uh, in the last year. I'd, I'd like to ask you just a, a bigger picture question about politics in 
Northern Ireland. Your party lost four seats in the Assembly election. The SDLP is one of the parties that was the key leading negotiating the Good Friday Agreement. Has your function moved on now? Are voters going to the Alliance Party? Is is this, you know, start of a demise for the SDLP? I, I think there are big shifts in uh, in, in northern politics and, and the SDLP and others are, are need to, to watch and watch and observe those two parallel things uh, are happening in fact. There's a there's a polarization and a large part of that is due to the toxicity that the Brexit debate has pumped into um, the everyday over the last six years. Morning, noon and night, you now hear about identity and sovereignty and borders and all of the things that the Good Friday Agreement was designed to sort of calm down. They are now uh, part of our daily discourse and that hasn't been positive. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Earlier, we were talking about the difficult economic picture facing the government in the UK. But one of the sectors that the Conservative Party are most excited about is technology. And joining us now is one of the founding partners of London Tech Week, Russ Shaw. He's also uh, the founder of Tech London Advocates and a London Tech Ambassador for the Mayor of London. Russ, we're really pleased to have you on the programme. Thanks for being with us. Now, we know that the economic picture is darkening in the UK, rising interest rates, rising costs, uh, concerns around uh, economic growth that has been slowing. How do you keep dynamic tech that the government is so focused on and has so many hopes for going despite all of those economic headwinds? Well, I think it's a great question, Caroline. And I think what we're seeing is, is the private sector is incredibly excited about 
so many aspects of the technology sector. Um, you know, we've just announced results yesterday that showed we basically had record levels of investment into UK tech during the first five months of 2022, coming from not only UK investors, but investors from the US, from Asia Pacific, and other places around the world. So they're liking what they're seeing. It's creating more and more startups and scale-ups. And um, we're seeing some really successful exits as well in terms of IPOs and the like. So there's a lot of excitement. And for me, I think the UK tech sector is now on a level with the US, with China, with India as one of the world leading technology sectors globally. Russ, at the same time, though, London IPO is on track for their worst first half of the year since 2009, the value falling to the lowest since the global financial crisis of those IPOs. Is that a trend that has slowed dramatically? And does that not paint a more gloomy picture of where those technology firms are? Well, I think I think the market conditions are certainly very, very challenging and not just the IPO markets in the UK, but we're seeing the same thing in the US. You know, the, the Chinese markets are also down significantly. And I think there's been a, a significant correction globally on tech. But with the numbers that came out yesterday, I still think there's an underlying trend that shows a real vote of confidence in UK tech. It's led by what we call fintech. We've seen some great investments in the fintech space, but I think why investors like UK tech is it's very diversified. It's Mm. not just about fintech. It's depth in artificial intelligence, in ed tech. Um, You know, we saw Multiverse uh, close a very significant £150 million round a couple of weeks ago. So people like the breadth and diversity of what they're seeing. So whilst your point is correct, the markets are volatile, um, the IPOs are down from where they've been, we're seeing that globally, we're still seeing a lot of people invest in tech, and equally, we're seeing phenomenal job growth. I mean, one of my concerns around UK tech, which I speak to the government about, is that we have over 100,000 tech vacancies in UK tech, mm. and we need to we need to fill those positions with both great homegrown talent and also really good overseas talent. Yeah, is the government really listening on that point? I mean, only today we are talking about um, the government. Um, enacting that the first flight uh, returning migrants, taking migrants out of the UK and sending them off to Rwanda. I mean, th- this perhaps is, um, uh, uh, you know, on a different level in terms of skill set. But what is the backdrop like for people coming into the UK? There was also, um, you know, there's been discussion about more visa access for qualified graduates into the UK. Is government listening on attracting talent? Yes, I think when it comes to skilled talent and skilled migrants, they are listening. And, you know, you, for example, the chancellor yesterday who opened London Tech Week talked about a new scale-up visa. There are different types of visas that have either been introduced or are in the pipeline to be introduced to really ensure that we have world-leading talent coming to the UK. So I give mm. them really high marks for that. Where I worry Caroline, is do we have enough resources in the home office to process the growth that we need to see in overseas talent to come here who want to apply for these visas? Um, and can we make sure that we process them effectively when we're also at the same time seeing a surge of migrants, as you've relayed, and we're seeing a lot of Ukrainians who also want to come here as well. So if we can get make sure that the home office is sufficiently staffed, 
that the processes are there. I think you know what the rhetoric is and the and the policies around innovation. If we can follow that through, we're going to be in a great place. If we can't follow that through, this is going to fall far short. And that's something that we speak to government about. Are these the right kind of visas that are being offered, though? Are they sufficiently long term? Do they provide people with a path that's going to make them want to invest in the UK? Or are they simply too short to allow a business to grow? No, I think from what we're seeing in terms of these visas, the timeframes and what they enable people to do, I think they're pretty generous compared to what we've seen in the past in terms of really wanting to attract people here for the longer term. Um, you know, every government minister I've met has said they want great talent, not just great entrepreneurs, but, but great people in the science and innovation space to come here. Um, and so I think that their, their message has been very clear. But again, I want to make sure that we have a fit-for-purpose home office that can process these because many mm. of the even the global talent visa recipients that I've met have said to me they love the visa they're excited by it they're, they're planning to live here for the longer term mm-hmm. but boy the process wasn't that easy okay there are lots of other issues that I want to get to but one I think very important is diversity and inclusion and um, yes. 80% of tech workers are men we know I was speaking to the CEO of women on boards UK there's a huge issue with the lack of diversity in boardrooms and the, the sl- very slow progress that is being made. This is, I mean, it's not just crucial, it's kind of dangerous to leave out those people from, from the tech revolution. It is. It, this is, to me, this is the biggest challenge that we face when we talk about talent in the technology sector. You know, as you said, we are a sector that's 80% white men, and I just don't think that is sustainable for the health and growth of our technology sector. Actually, in fact, yesterday, I co-hosted a diversity and inclusion roundtable with Secretary of State Nadine Dorries with um, a dozen of our advocates from our Black Women in Tech group, our Tech for Disabilities group, um, and really making sure that she understood, that Nadine Dorries understood what's happening at the ground level, why this is such a key thing for us to really address. Do there not need to be more stringent targets? I mean, the thing that the only thing, and it hasn't managed to move the needle that much, is the transparency around the gender pay gap reporting that the UK has implemented. That has been the key driver. In Europe, there have been far more forceful rules about you know, pushing the gender and, and, and diversity and inclusion into companies because it's been so difficult to get. Should yes. there be better targets? So two things for me. I think the gender pay initiative in the UK has been very positive. I'd love to see something similar along um, ethnicity, um, race, etc., so that we're really being fully transparent. That, to me, if we can get that through, would be a really positive thing. Personally, from my own point of view, I am a fan of targets. Um, I think that's a really important thing to do. When I speak to the community, there are mixed reactions from that and mixed reactions from the people who you sometimes think those targets would benefit. So I like them. I think they're important. You've got places like Norway that now require, I believe, 40% of their boards to have um, women on their boards. Uh, and, And the needle has certainly moved in those places. My other message here is I think we need to speak to, and part of my role in tech is I speak to the white men and say, look, you are an equal, if not greater part, of how we need to move the needle. 
and I try and put the spotlight on those leaders who are really working hard to make the change. But there's also many CEOs and many boards that are just talking the talk. They're really not delivering. And that was part of our discussion yesterday in our roundtable is how do we address that? How do we bring more white men into this conversation um, in the absence of targets or quotas or anything like that? They have to play a role in helping to fix this this diversity and inclusion problem. Russ, London is, is competing for talent and for investment opportunities in an increasingly competitive market, particularly post-Brexit. You know, I've lost count of the number of ministers I've heard claim that their country is the new startup nation. <laughs> how, how does London compete in a situation like that where it's even more difficult for people who are you know, from the European Union to live and work in this country? And, and we have you know, countries like France and initiatives like Station F bringing so much attention to other places? Yeah, it, it, it's a really good question, and it is an added challenge for us. Obviously, with Brexit, and then on top of that, the pandemic, we saw a number of EU nationals go back to their home markets and have now found it difficult to come back here. Um, again, that message has been, been, been shared with the government to say we, we, we need to come back to the visa and immigration situation. At the same time, um, you know, there are a lot of overseas nationals who really want to come here. You know, just today there's an announcement that London is now ranked second after Silicon Valley. And this is by Startup Genome, which is a think tank out of San Francisco, as one of the best places to start and scale a business. Mm. So that is helping us with the message that says, look, even though we're outside the European Union, even though we have issues with talent, we have to double down and work really hard and we are working hard, and the results are showing that we're growing. So it is, it is our biggest issue. But on top of that, what I would say, Stephen, is that we also need to really focus on bringing more homegrown talent into the sector. How, you, know, I, you know, I look at our, our fantastic universities across the country, but mm. when I talk to startups and scale-ups, they say, you know, great graduates, but none of them touch digital while they're at university. Okay. Unless you're in computer science, we've got to fix the homegrown talent, go into the diverse communities and say there is a home for you in the tech sector. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.